The Daily Gazette Company presents the Parting Shots Podcast. Now, here's your host, Daily Gazette Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Thank you, Scott Keezy and Elton John, and welcome to the Parting Shots Podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe today. Thanks for joining me from the festive Parting Shots Podcast studio in Schenectady, New York, as we get set for Christmas Day on Monday. Uh, great podcast for you leading into the Christmas holiday. Uh, we're going to talk some football and some Major League Baseball. Our friend Dennis Wozak, Jr. of the Associated Press, who covers the NFL and the New York Jets for AP. Uh, we're going to talk about the mess that is the Jets. Uh, they've been eliminated again from uh, postseason contention. Uh, the big news this week was Aaron Rodgers was uh, activated from the IR, but he's not going to play uh, in the remaining games. There's really no sense in him playing uh, as they try to rehab from that torn Achilles. I mean, it just seemed like a little crazy he was trying to come back uh, uh, from that, because usually, you know, that's a season-ending injury, and it and turned out to be that way. So we'll talk about that with uh, Dennis and other issues with the Jets and what's uh, the future hold for maybe head coach Robert Sala and general manager Joe Douglas. Uh, it was an interview that was taped on Friday. I taped an interview with the ESPN baseball analyst uh, Tim Kirkshin on Wednesday. We'll talk about uh, the big uh, news of Shohei Otani signing to with the, the uh, Los Angeles Dodgers, a $700 million contract. We'll talk about the trade of Juan Soto from the Padres to the New York Yankees. And we'll talk about some other baseball issues, including the uh, the, the new rule this season that uh, we saw the pitch clock and uh, limited uh, throws over to first base. Uh, it was announced on Thursday that uh, Major League Baseball is going to widen the uh, lane between the home plate and first base. Uh, that topic, of, you know, unfortunately, did not come up on Wednesday since it happened on Thursday. So we'll, um, yeah, we'll talk about the. Like I said, I think the rule change with the pitch clock was really the big one. Uh, Tim will have his thoughts on that as well. So, well, stick around. We're going to have Dennis Wajak Jr. of the Associates coming up next to talk about the Jets. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast. Hi, this is Betsy Hume Lynn from the Daily Gazette Company. I hope you and your family have a wonderful holiday season and a prosperous and healthy 2024. Hi, I'm Daily Gazette News columnist Andrew Waite and host of the Weighing In podcast which takes you inside my award-winning featured news column by offering the backstory, thought process, and interviews that inform my work. Plus, readers have their chance to respond. The Weighing In Podcast is available at dailygazette.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to get all the latest news from the Daily Gazette on your phone or tablet? We have an app for that. The Daily Gazette app allows you to read all the newspaper stories and columns from our dedicated team of journalists. The app is free. You can download the app from the Apple or Google App Stores. Hi, this is Daily Gazette sports writer Mike McAdam. I'd like to wish you a happy holiday season and a great 2024. Welcome back to the podcast. And uh, the New York Jets have uh, an activated quarterback in Aaron Rodgers, but he's not going to play this year. And just uh, another season without a playoff appearance. And um, my condolences to our next guest who covers the Jets for the Associated Press along with the NFL, Dennis Wazak Jr. I guess the good thing, Dennis, and first of all, happy holidays to you. Is that this is the final Jets home game you get to cover this year? How I mean how thrilling is that? 
<laughs> well, happy holidays to you too, Ken. And yeah, it's uh, it's been a long season. I mean, we've talked a few times throughout the year, and we've gone through like the uh, we've we've run the the range of emotions and and expectations. You know, talking in the summer or heading into the season about Super Bowl talk, and and here we are, 13 straight years without a playoff uh, appearance, and. It's uh, it's just it turned in. It went from a season that could be something very different to something that we've seen kind of year in and year out around I mean, here. I mean, did the season, in effect, end when Aaron Rodgers went down less than uh, four minutes into the season opener? Yeah, it's funny because when when it happened, you think, okay, the season's over, but then the Jets kind of hung around and they played well against some teams they beat uh philly they hung out hung around against kansas city they almost beat that so when you look back at the totality of it it's like yeah well that that pretty much ended the season because um the, the way they have struggled on offense throughout the year it probably would have been a lot different if aaron Rodgers had been playing um but the the journey to this point you didn't really know. I mean, it, the defense played well enough to keep this team in games uh, throughout the year, but the offense was bad. And, and yet they were able to win a few games with the offense not being great. So, um, but when all said and done, yes, like that, that injury to Aaron Rodgers really kind of sunk the season. And anyway, the way Rodgers was talking, I mean, he was talking about he was going to try to come back this year. I mean, who who comes back from a torn Achilles that quickly? I mean, is it, was that just a, a pipe dream on his part? And was, yeah, I mean, it just didn't seem like feasible that it was going to happen, especially with the way that, you know, especially you know, the Jets you know, not stumbling the way they were. It wasn't even worth trying to come back. Yeah, I, like I, I think there was some some truth to it. I think there, there was some reality to it where – Aaron Rodgers progressed to a point that nobody's ever really seen uh, somebody progress to, given that that type of injury. I mean, he's been out here practice, and he's he's jogging, and he's he's uh, backpedaling, and he's he's doing you know jumping jacks, and I mean, this is a guy who is it 14 weeks ago, uh, you know, just over three months ago was dealing with. You know, a season-ending injury that normally takes you know eight, eight, nine months to recover from. So, I think there was some, and and I think the big thing here was that because he had the type of of improvements and progress in his recovery, he was kind of a symbolic, you know, sign of hope for this team. If they could just keep winning and stay in the playoff hunt. He was the carrot at the end of that, you know, that that, hey, you know, I, I might be able to come back and we still might be able to do this run that we thought we would do before I got hurt. You know, and mm-hmm. I think that was part of it. I think I think there there's some ego involved that he wanted to be the first to come back or the quickest to come back from that injury. But I think it also was that he felt that he let these guys down because there were such uh, lofty expectations that, you know, hey, you know, if you guys can hang on, I'm doing I'm working the hardest I can to try to get there. You, you guys, if you can you know, do it. And I mean, that part was a pipe dream because of what we talked about earlier about the offense. Just not like this team was not a playoff team, especially from the offensive side. But, 
you know, I, I think it, I never thought it would happen, but as the last couple of weeks transpired, it was like, Oh man, this, this guy might actually be able to do this. I mean, look at him. So, um, yeah, but it's amazing how we've been talking about him for the entire season and he played four snaps. Yeah. I mean, I, I posted on my Facebook page, I was going to be talking with you and a couple of my, um, Friends from York College of Pennsylvania weighed in on that. And, uh, Lisa Wheeler wrote, uh, what medical fool decided that Rogers could defy uh, physiology and, and healing 101 and think he would get past, uh, get back before the end of the regular season? Wait, how about get back this year? And what GM fool slash coach uh, drank that Kool-Aid? I have some oceanfront property in Kansas I would like to sell them. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's pretty good. That's, but uh, but I, I do think that there was that they believed because of the progress he made. And even Rogers had, had told us, you know, some of the after the nine week mark, um, one of the doctors had told him they've never seen an Achilles in that shape after, you know, such a short amount of time. So so I think there was a belief that if there was a guy that was going to pull it off, that it was going to be Aaron Rodgers. And uh you know, I think he had people believing in that idea. Yeah. Uh, my friend, uh, Aggie uh, Tack, uh, t- posted, because uh, I, w- I was mentioning this was a uh, chance to air some grievances because we're close to Festivus. Uh, she goes, <laughs> gr- she goes, grievances? How long is the podcast? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, think about it as, as a Jets fan. I mean, there were there were stages of grief and, and uh, you know, mourning at, right after the injury, you know, mm-hmm. and you went through, like, disbelief and anger and, and sadness, and then they started playing okay, and then it's like, oh, okay, maybe we could do this, and then Aaron Rodgers is saying it, and it just turned out to be, you know, just one thing after another, the offensive line not doing the off, the offense as a whole not playing well. Um, there are definitely plenty of grievances if you're a Jets fan to, to air this year, for sure. <laughs> what, what purpose did it serve to activate Rodgers from the IR if he's not going to play? So if a player goes on IR, they're not allowed to practice. They can remain with the team and be in meetings, but they can't be on the practice field. So I think with him, they they value just him being out there with the other players and going through the drills and being able to practice. If they had kept him on IR, that would have shut down. So he's made so much progress. I guess they figured the next step in his rehab is to continue practicing and that would have to be shut down if they didn't activate him and and robert sala said because of some of the uh things that we've dealt with roster wise we had a roster spot and it wasn't really going to cost anyone a spot just to activate him and keep him around and keep him active um and i think you know at this point they're looking long term to next year that if he continues to practice the next couple of weeks he goes into the offseason way ahead of schedule so that by the time workouts begin next offseason, the Achilles isn't even an issue anymore. Yeah. Dennis Wozak Jr. joining us on the uh, Parting Shots podcast. Uh, Zach Wilson had suck, uh, maybe a couple of good games, for the, but for the most part just struggled again. Uh, he's out this uh, Sunday against Washington because he has not cleared uh, uh, concussion protocol. What is his future? Hmm. That's a great question because I'm not sure anybody really knows. As far as his future here with the Jets, I, I think it'll be just the next few games and that's it. I, I I think 
he believes and I think the organization believes it will be in their best interest for him to get a uh, fresh start. And I think that's what he needs. I, he's been so beaten up here um, mentally and, you know, and just his performance has not lived up to what you expect from the number two pick. They made mistakes with him. I think in just retrospect, looking back at, at how they put him into the starting role immediately, he was a team captain as a rookie. I think it was probably too much too soon. And we've seen that with a lot of rookies over the years and these young quarterbacks who were high draft picks get thrusted to these situations and, you know, some will thrive, but most don't, you know, and, and we're seeing just from that draft class, other than Trevor Lawrence, you've got you know, Trey Lance and Justin Fields and Zach Wilson, guys who have struggled uh, because they were, were in a system that maybe didn't suit them or they were in a, in a situation that they weren't ready for. I think Zach Wilson has improved in some ways. I think he's shown to be more mature than he has. I mean, he was really taking a beating from the media, from the fans over his first two years, particularly last year. And he didn't handle it as well as he did this year. I think, I think he knows, I think he knows he's, he's going to go somewhere else and he's got so much athleticism and ability that, you know, if he could just get it in between the ears. And I think that's where he's made some progress, but he needs to make a lot more. And I just think if he goes somewhere where they really know how to deal with quarterbacks and grow them and, and develop them, that's where he'll, he'll end up thriving. So Trevor Simeon will get the start Sunday against the Commanders, another team that's been struggling all year. Is this quarterback number five for the Jets this year? This is number four. Number and four, it's okay. the second time in franchise <laughs> history they've started four. Yeah, I mean, I've lost track with. I can see as you can tell. What does Trevor Simeon bring, or what? When, what? What's, what role is he going to fill here as these final, at least for Sunday, and we don't know beyond and beyond. Yeah, I mean, he's basically just kind of a placeholder. He's a veteran, thirty-one-year-old with a lot of ex, uh, starting experience, but you know, he's not super outstanding in any uh, particular phase of. of quarterback play he's you know he could be solid at times um he's lost his last six starts um including a start against the jets last year um so i you know he's he's a veteran who can run the offense and and be okay i just you know the, the jets are just trying to get to the end of the season now and and try to maybe pull out a win or two this is a good chance for them to do that they're playing the worst ranked defense in the NFL in Washington, but the Jets are the worst ranked offense. So as I wrote in the preview, it's you know something's gotta give, right? Maybe. Who no, knows? no, it could, could it could be zero zero. You better look at the Vikings right. and Raiders a couple weeks ago. That was indoors. I mean how do you have a zero zero game indoors until a two minute warning in the fourth quarter? <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. And and here's here's a little nugget. The Jets uh, the Jets are, I think, four and eight against Washington. I think that's where or three and seven. I can't remember, but their very first win against Washington was in 1993, I believe, when they beat Washington three nothing on Carrie Blanchard's 45 year old, 45 uh, yard field goal um, in the first quarter of that game. <laughs> so we could have something similar on Sunday. 
And unfortunately, the Capital Region fans will have to watch that game on uh, CBS Six here. So <laughs> I don't know. I, th- I think they, I think uh, they dropped out of that uh, Dolphins Miami game. Uh, they switched to another game, more competitive game on Sunday. So I mean, I don't know. Uh, so it's, it's. I mean, what what happens with this organization now? I mean, yeah, Robert Sala. It was brought in and hasn't really done the job. Joe Douglas, the general manager, I mean, you got to question some of his moves. What, what I mean, is there a possibility we could see um, maybe a house being cleaned there here after the end of the end of the regular season? No, I, I think once Aaron Rodgers uh, the other day expressed his uh, confidence and support in leadership here, and that means Joe Douglas, Robert Sala, and offensive coordinator Nathaniel Hackett who's a big reason Rodgers came here. I think once he came out and said that, it it was a good indication that there won't be a house cleaning. I think he said on the, the Pat McAfee show, he's basically said, you know, I think we have good leadership in place. We just need to do some things. This is This doesn't need to be a rebuild. We just need to reload at certain spots. And that's where Joe Douglas comes in. I mean, a lot of the the blame this year has gone to Robert Sala, who deservedly so, Nathaniel Hackett, deservedly so, and the quarterback play. And um, I think Joe Douglas is also starting to feel that he too, because a lot of what you expected would happen with the Jets in terms of having playmakers and uh, an offensive line up front, it just fell apart. And he's made some incorrect decisions on some of those guys. I mean, Alan Lazard came here, obviously the Rogers connection in green Bay, but he's got 20 catches this year and they, they paid you know, $44 million or something like that with a ton of guaranteed money for him. And he's just not produced. Um, some of the other guys that they brought in Randall Cobb and, and Billy Turner, the offensive lineman. And, you know, there are, there are several people that they brought in, who just not who have not panned out, and when you look at that offensive line that has played like eleven starting combinations in fourteen games, a lot of that's bad luck because of injuries. But I mean, you have to be better at bringing in the talent. And Robert Salas kind of stressed that over the last week and a half about the offensive line. We got to get better up front, and that's kind of a signal to Joe Douglas too. Like, hey. You need to help us here because this offense isn't going to do a damn thing if we can't block up front, and that's been you know, it's been proven over the last two years uh, with Zach Wilson running for his life, and uh, it just they need to really fix that. So that really goes on Joe Douglas, but I think all of those guys will be back. But can if we're sitting here next year at this time and this team is not in the playoffs or in the playoff hunt, then that's when there could be a complete rebuild here. Yeah. Can you answer this question for me? How in God's name did the Jets beat my Eagles back in <laughs> earlier this season? I mean, I, yeah, I, 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 I can give you one reason. The Eagles played stupid football. I'm still trying – I still can't understand why they're passing on third and nine with two minutes left and the Jets out of timeouts and, you know, you can you know, burn some clock there. And instead, Hurts throws an interception and almost turned you – know, and the Jets end up getting the go-ahead touchdown and winning the game. Yeah, and I think the Jets were motivated at that point. Not that they're not motivated now, but they, they saw an opening. And it was like an us-against-the-world mentality where, you know, here are the Eagles, everybody's pick at that point. 
to go to the Super Bowl, and they're right in, in it with them, and they're they're playing well, and the defense was doing the job, and I think that that's how. I mean, I I think there were mistakes made by Philly. They probably, when you look at it, Philly beat itself, you know, yeah. and and Jets just capitalized on some situations there. But at that point, the Jets were in a spot where they were kind of feeling that maybe, you know, a couple of these wins we could be in the playoff on, even without Rodgers. And that, that was a win that, that really made this organization like stop and think like, Hey, you know, maybe, maybe we do have, um, you know, the talent even without Rodgers here, but now, you know, it's when you look back at it, it's like, yeah, Philly clearly, um, Help the Jets beat them that day. Yeah. Uh, you cover the NFL also for the Associated Press. Let me ask you a little bit about some of those AFC East teams. Uh, looks like yeah, Miami and Buffalo is going to come down maybe to that final game with the regular season to decide the East Division title. Uh, Buffalo had a little stretch there where they struggled, but the, uh, the Bills have seen the bounce back. And I mean, is that a dangerous team? And can they you know make some noise uh, in the postseason if they get there? Yeah, for sure. I, I still like Buffalo. I think Miami will hold on and win the division, but I, I think Buffalo can still um, get into the playoffs, and and that's the type of team that they're, you know, they're they're playoff hardened. They've been there, um, they've been through these situations, the, the high stress, the high intensity um, situations of the playoffs, and um, yeah, and I think they they do think they have something to prove because, you know. This is a team that was a, a Super Bowl favorite over the last couple of years, and it their seasons ended in disappointment. So you come into this year still thinking, you know what? Like this is going to be a tougher division um, with the Jets and Rodgers at that time, and the Dolphins, a rising team, uh, feeling very confident and having playmakers, uh, and and they've stumbled. And but now you're starting to see them come back. I think. Josh Allen is is cutting down on the mistakes that were really short circuiting some of the, uh, the play the drives that that the offense had in some of these games that they lost. So I think when you put that all together, that team could be really dangerous in the playoffs. And um, you know, might catch a team not expecting them to be what they were a couple of years ago or even last year. Um, but yeah, I, I think they can definitely. Uh, be trouble for a team and i i still think baltimore is is the team in the afc mm-hmm. but you know who knows even kansas city you know i like you, you look at their talent overall on offense and you think well they don't really have the receivers and you know but just throw patrick mahomes out there and like who knows you know just like kind of last year just you know so i think the afc is definitely wide open and the bills will be right there in the end for sure is bill belichick done in new england I think so. I think that it seems that that's how it's going. It seems that that it's it's a strange thing because he's done so much for that franchise, and you don't want it to end on a bad note. But sometimes change is needed, and nothing will change what he's done for that team and and all the championships and the winning culture. Um, but sometimes it's time for a change, and I think. This is probably it, um, and he'll have an opportunity to go. I, I think he really wants to break Shula's record for all-time coaching wins, so I think he'll go somewhere else and try uh, to, to to break that record and and show that you know it's not, it wasn't all just Brady, you know that he had because that that's something that people talk about too. That 
you know, hey, without Brady, maybe Belichick isn't the greatest. But, yeah, I, I think the time is uh, running out. And it'll be interesting to see what happens in the last game of the season with the Jets going to New England and New England potentially being in play for the number one pick if they lose. Yeah. Interesting. Final question. I'll wrap this up. When Kansas City visited uh, MetLife Stadium to, to face the Jets, what was it like to hang out with Taylor Swift? <laughs> I could not believe that that ended up being, you know, like being right there. You know, for me, that was the bigger story that day. AP, we wanted Taylor Swift coverage, you know. And, of course, with everything going on with the Jets, like, of course, she would be there too. So, mm. um it's kind of funny how it's been like an ongoing storyline, right? Yeah. Wherever she's gone, that's, you know, you're seeing video of her and uh, pictures of her with Kelsey. And, um, yeah, but that, that's just kind of the way the season went. Like, of, of course she was going to be at MetLife Stadium with the Jets. Yeah. So. Well, I guess the, the best thing about that night, though, is me, the game was a lot more competitive than anybody thought. So there was less coverage on yeah. NBC about it. Taylor's foot being there, which I think a lot of uh, football fans are very happy about. I don't right, know about the exactly. I don't know about the Swifties though. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, hey Dennis, uh, I appreciate all you've done for me on the podcast over the past year, and uh, look forward to chatting with you in 2024. Uh, maybe if there's any Jets news uh, after the season, we'll we'll chat about that. You got it, Ken. I appreciate you, and uh, yeah, it's been, been quite a year for sure. Yeah. Okay, and thanks a lot, Dennis. Appreciate it. Happy holidays. Same to you. That's Dennis Wozniak of the Associated Press. Uh, we're going to talk some baseball with the ESPN's Tim Kirchner coming up. So stay tuned here with the Parting Shots podcast. Hi, this is Daily Gazette Director of Content Michael Kelly. I hope you and your family have a wonderful holiday season and a prosperous and healthy 2024. It's the most historic conference in college hockey. It's a battle night in and night out. ECAC Hockey, an iconic conference home to 12 of the most prestigious universities and programs in the world, and showcasing the best student athletes in the sport. Top-notch facilities and arenas, incomparable traditions, passionate fans, alumni who go on to become elite professionals, leaders, and champions. ECAC Hockey, there's no experience like it. Hi, this is Daily Gazette Deputy Director of Content, Adam Schinder. I would like to wish you a happy holiday season and a great 2024. Welcome back to the podcast. And uh, even though it's Christmas, it's always a good time to talk baseball. And uh, Tim Kirkson of ESPN is kind enough to join us here on the, on the podcast. Tim, welcome back to the podcast. Hope all is well and uh, happy holidays. Well, thank you, Ken. Happy holidays to you, too. Well, a lot of news, uh, obviously, coming out in the last couple of weeks, especially with Sho- uh, Shohei Otani. The 10-year, $700 million contract he signed with the Dodgers. What does this mean for the Dodgers? Uh, with the knowledge that Otani was most likely not going to pitch because he has that torn UCL in his uh, right elbow and he hasn't really divulged whether he's had Tommy John surgery or not. Yeah, this was a staggering um, move. I'm not surprised that the Dodgers got him. I thought they would get him all along, even though there were some other teams Right in there, I think we were all really surprised at the amount of money, $700 million, and even more surprised that $680 million of it is deferred. But the bottom line is this. Um, he's a once-in-a-lifetime player. When you can hit 
you know, Mookie Betts, Freddie Freeman, and Otani now, at least for the next five years, probably longer. Uh, that's a pretty impressive group. I expect him to pitch in 2025. But, you know, with arm injuries, pitchers, violent delivery, violent stuff, uh, you never know. But um, he brings in so much revenue to a team just by being Shohei Otani that this made sense for the Dodgers. They have saved their money really, really well in recent years when they could have gone after so many other guys. And uh, they got the guy they wanted all along, and it will be a fascinating team to watch. And he doesn't have to move too far. Obviously, playing for the uh, Los Angeles Angels, I mean, they, they, the Angels have to be really devastated that he just moved up the road to L.A. and, uh, and you know, at Dodger Stadium, and uh, he's going to be in, there, in that area for a long time. Yes, and again, the Angels, um, as far as I can tell, made a, a good move to keep him, and he was very comfortable there, and comfort is very important to Shohei Otani. He has to be comfortable on the mound, in the batter's box, with everything that goes on around him. But in the end, I mean, having already won two MVPs, both unanimously, no one's ever done that before, he wants to win, and the bottom line is the Dodgers, at least in my mind, give them, give him the best chance to win over the next 10 years. Now, having said that, the Dodgers still have to improve their, their starting rotation, their whole pitching staff, if they're going to be the team that they want to be. But the Dodgers, from what I can tell, are not done dealing. Yeah, they also signed Tyler, acquired Tyler Glass now from the Tampa Bay Rays. I mean, that helps in improve the pitching a little bit. Yeah, Glass now is a fascinating character in that, you know, he's never qualified for an ERA title. He gets hurt quite often, but his stuff is absolutely spectacular. And even though he's really struggled with control in the postseason, I think he's worth um, worth the risk here, given the money they have to pay him uh, for a guy that, you know, has had some issues, wins and losses, staying healthy, everything. But I think he's going to be really good for them. I think he just needed another change of scenery, gets with a winning team, although he's been on one. Um, I, I like what the Dodgers did there, but they're still a starting pitcher short. It'll be interesting to see where they go from here. I mean, how close are we to seeing someone sign for a billion-dollar contract? Well, I, I don't think we're going to see anyone close to Otani because, again, he is a once – in a lifetime player. We've never seen anybody like him, and that's why he demanded and commanded the money that he got. So I, I mean, he beat the previous record by $250 million. So I don't see anyone going over $700 million anytime soon, but um, he's just a different player, and he provides, you know, different situations for the Dodgers. Yeah. Well, let's head out east to uh, New York with the Yankees. Uh, didn't have a great season, missed the playoffs, almost finished last in the East Division. They made some news with a blockbuster trade in acquiring outfielder Juan Soto from the San Diego Padres. How does this improve the Yankees? Well, it improves them greatly offensively because they were not a good offensive team by any means last year. I mean, they were like 27th in in runs scored on base percentage was not good 304 and they picked up a guy whose career on base percentage is well over 100 points higher 421 than the Yankees on base percentage last year they became a very slow station to station team 
they needed a premier hitter, and you could at least make the case that at his age, Juan Soto is the best hitter in baseball, and that's precisely what the Yankees needed. They, um, you know, they went 82 and 80 last year. Yeah. They finished fourth place in their division. That's not good enough when you're in the Bronx. I don't think the Yankees are done yet by any means, but at least they addressed their offensive situation with Alex Verdugo first, and of course. Juan Soto, who gives them exactly what they need. Of course, Soto um, has one year left on his deal, and he's in his introductory news conference. He deflected questions about signing a long-term deal. So how much pressure is on the Yankees to uh, sign him to a long-term deal? Well, the Yankees need to sign him long-term, but you know we've thought all along, being a Scott Boris client, that he is going to go to free agency because most Scott Boris clients do in order to get every team involved and give his client the best chance to really take advantage of that. So my guess is Juan Soto will, it's a guess, will not sign long-term. He will go to free agency. And if he has a great year in New York, and I expect him to, the Yankees will be first in line to make sure they keep him long-term. But again, it's Scott Boris's MO to let guys go to free agency and see what the free market has to say. Well, a player that the Yankees and several other teams are pursuing is pitcher Yoshiobu uh, Yamamoto, a 25-year-old right-hander who was 16-6 and with a 1.21 ERA. That's Bob Gibson-type ERA numbers uh, this season for the Oryx uh, Buffaloes of Japan's Pacific League. Is he as good as advertised? Well, we'll see about that, but everyone that I've talked to says he's the real deal. He will be an ace of a major league team the minute he shows up. He throws in the upper 90s. He has a great split. He has great control. When the games matter the most, he seems to be at his best. He had a 14-strikeout game and clinching game in the World Series. He pitched in the WBC. There's nothing not to like about him, and given his age, 25, he presents a very attractive figure to the Yankees, the Mets, the Dodgers, and others, Giants, Blue Jays, others. And because the biggest market teams are involved and they all need another starting pitcher, from what I can gather from the people I've talked to, his you know, his value have gone from two hundred million to over three hundred million. <laughs> and I expect him to get that now because again of his age, his talent level, and the Dodgers need him. The Yankees need him, the Mets need him, and so do a few other teams. My Phillies need him. <laughs> yes, and the Phillies aren't out of this either. That's that's the point, is that big-time, big-market teams have a need for a quality starting pitcher. Phillies are one of them. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the Mets. Uh, they were expected to be a World Series contender in 2023. Instead, they were a hot mess. Uh, they ended up becoming sellers and fired Buck Showalter, their manager, What do you think went wrong with them uh, this season? Well, they weren't the same offensive team that they were the year before. and There are a lot of reasons for that, injuries included. The biggest thing, of course, is that Edwin Diaz went down in the WBC. He meant so much to that bullpen. And he just, when he went down, the entire fortunes of that pitching staff went in the wrong direction because that team knew we got a lead after seven innings. We can get people out in the eighth, and then we bring in the best closer in the game, which he was two years ago in the ninth. But their starting pitching wasn't even close to what it was uh, the previous year. 
Max Scherzer had injury issues. Other people moved on. Um, it was really a disappointing season, obviously, for the Mets. I sure didn't see that coming. But it was a complete collapse offensively and mostly in their starting pitching. And without Diaz, um, they really, really had a difficult year. Well, Carlos Mendoza is the new Mets manager. He was the Yankees bench coach. Uh, what do we know about Carlos Mendoza? Well, I know Aaron Boone has uh, you know, sung his praises many, many times to me and others. Um, and they hired John Gibbons to be his bench coach, which I think is a good idea. Get a veteran man, former manager in there, calming hand. Um, again, everything we hear and everything I know about Carlos Mendoza, he's a really sharp guy. Problem is, this is New York, and there's you know there's no grace period when you're the Mets. And even though um, you know they have all this money to spend, uh, it'll be really interesting to see where they go with this team. If they get Yamamoto, uh, people are going to ex- expect them to win and make the playoffs, and that'll be a lot of pressure on a rookie manager. I, I think he's up for it, but in New York, all bets are off. Tim Kirchin joining us here on the uh, Parting Shots podcast as we talk. Uh, uh, Major League Baseball. The uh, Texas Rangers won their first World Series, and it was the fourth for uh, manager Bruce Bochy. I mean, ha- how does this cement his legacy as a Hall of Fame manager? Well, he was already a Hall of Fame manager when he retired, but when he came back, he only enhanced his case. Uh, four World Series, only six managers have ever won four World Series game uh, World Series. He's won over 2,000 games, and it's so just so encouraging to see an older veteran guy come in with a calming influence that whole thing changed the minute he walked in that door that team lost nine in a row and 20 out of 30 and not once did bruce bochi panic with that club he held it together they had some really difficult times in the postseason and he held it together again And for any team to win 11 straight road games in the same postseason, which is unprecedented, Bruce Bochy's steady hand had a lot to do with that. Yep. Um, Of course, um, you've known I I grew up in Philadelphia as a Phillies fan. My my vivid memory of Bruce Bochy is getting run over by Pete Rose in Game 4 of the 1980 National League Championship Series in the 10th inning there. So that's that's still my image of Bruce Bochy. (laughs) But uh, he's been a great manager, there's no doubt about that. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about you know the way the season of the Braves, Dodgers, and Orioles all won at least 100 games, yet they were all eliminated in the divisional round. You had a 90-win Texas team playing an 84-win Arizona team in the World Series. I mean, is this really good for baseball to have that? I mean, do you see the, the best teams not in the World Series? Well, this is the beauty of baseball, Ken, as you know, is that once you get to the playoffs, anything is possible. The unpredictable nature of the game is its greatest strength. Whereas, and I love basketball, don't get me wrong, but you know, when the Warriors had those three great shooters, Steph and Clay and KD, and when Jordan had Pippen and they were at their prime, you kind of knew they were going to win yeah. when the postseason began. You kind of knew how the games were going to be played. It doesn't work that way in baseball, and that's what I love so, so much about it. Now, having said that, First off, the Diamondbacks and um, the Rangers belong to be there. They won the games. Mm-hmm. No one can take that away from them. Yeah, However, I, know, I, know. <laughs> I, I think it is time, again, to take a look at uh, the playoff structure. I just think teams that play every day during the regular season, it is a game that is played best when you play it every day, and then suddenly they have five, maybe even 
six days off at the most important time, that can't be a good thing. So I think we need to condense the schedule. We need to start that wild card series uh, on the Monday after the season ends, not Tuesday. And we got to get those hundred teams and those division winners playing more, you know, as quickly as possible because they're better when they get uh, when they get a chance to play. They're not looking for a six day rest. Or how about maybe adding another wild card team? Is that could that be down the road? Or... Well, anything is possible. <laughs> I think we have plenty of playoff teams as it is. Forty percent of the teams make the playoffs. You know, I'm 67 years old. I grew up at a time where only two teams made the playoffs. (laughs) But I understand what we're doing. Playoffs are great, keeping more teams involved and everything else. But, again, the danger of keeping putting in more playoff teams is, you know, you take away to some degree the integrity of the 162-game season. It is such a grueling season that teams that win their division deserve – to get a break and sometimes it looks like they're working against it because they won so many games and had to wait to play yeah i was uh, i was so angry at the phillies for blowing that series against arizona i did not watch a single pitch of the world series i was just that uh, was just couldn't i couldn't do it i was just yeah i don't know it wouldn't would have been fun to see the phillies match up against bruce Bosch because i know bruce had his had their number in 2010 in the national league championship series and it always seemed like the Giants always had the better edge uh, over the Phillies while he was managing. One thing that um, we just got through year one of the pitch clock and the limited pickoff throws. How do you think that worked in year one? Well, I'm really surprised how well the pitch clock worked. I was doubtful going into the to spring training uh, whether it was going to work because these are the ultimate creatures of habit. They've been working a certain way. Um, but I was really impressed and pleased with how quickly the adjustment was made by the players because essentially they were told, you better adjust because we're not changing the rules. And Aaron Boone told me four games into the exhibition season, the Yankees played a game in Orlando and there was no pitch clock. They didn't have the technology and the game still ended in two and a half hours because the players Four games in, we're already conditioned to let's go, let's get in the box, let's get on the mound, let's throw. We cut off basically 30 minutes per game, and that's, you know, 30 minutes ultimately in dead time. I think it was a really good thing for baseball. I'm still not sold that the bigger bases are a great idea or the, you know, the engagement rule is a good idea. There are a lot of things I still don't like about it, but I don't think there's a way around this. The pitch clock really worked it improved the pace it quickened it it made it a crisper better game and we still have a long way to go strikeouts are still out of control we still got to raise the batting average higher than where we are we have to return the value of the hit but the pitch clock was a stunning success and i heard that from virtually every person in the game well pet peeve of mine is and it it seems like it's going on the last maybe five ten years or so Baseballs have the uh, life expectancy of a fruit fly. They mean just they, they, they ball hits the dirt that's thrown out that's thrown out of play. Balls that are hit in the outfield and they're thrown out of play. I mean, why do they do that? What, I mean, it seems like they go through 200, 300 baseballs in a game. Yeah, you know, I'm so old, Ken. When I used to cover in the late '70s, early '80s, when a pitcher threw a ball in the dirt, um, he wanted that ball back because yeah. now he's got a scuff on it. 
Now we see the catcher throw that ball out of the game, whereas a pitcher back then knew exactly what to do with the scuffed baseball. He could make it move in the direction that he wanted it to, but we're just not interested in that anymore. We're interested in throwing as hard as we can. We're interested in throwing a, you know, a slider at 93 or a cutter at 95. We're interested in off-speed pitches even more than fastballs. So this is just another change in the game, and I, I'm, as, I'm as surprised as you are. Uh, balls are being thrown into the stands, out of games all the time, mm-hmm. and they've only been used for like 30 seconds, yeah. it seems. Yeah, I, this is just the way the game is played today. Yeah, because I'm you know, when I went to games at the Vet uh, when I was growing up in Philly, but, you know, end of an inning, the, 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 the fielder throws the ball, then rolls the ball to the pitcher's mound, or even when a you know, pitcher struck out, the catcher gave the, the pitcher the ball. I mean, that's, that's how I, I go back that far, too. <laughs> right, well, those days are so far over and there's so many baseballs that are being used today we just have to make the adjustment believe me yeah. it's been hard for me too because <laughs> i'm an old guy but i i'm i'm all good with the way we play the game today i i i i, I would love to return in some ways to the old days but you know watching baseball is still great for me yeah final question this is from a, a listener mitch who was a regular listener to the podcast and a big uh, chicago white Sox fan he wants to know why his White Sox have no concept of how to build a winning organization on a consistent basis. Yeah, that's a good question. They have been a tremendous disappointment the last two years. Um, you know, they did not build a particularly good defensive team. In fact, they were below average defensively. Um, they acquired and, and, you know, brought in guys who got hurt all the time. They simply didn't throw enough strikes on the mound. And they have a lot of work to do to turn this team around into uh, the White Sox of old when they made it to the World Series, you know, 18 years ago. Um, But I think they're going to have to do extra work here. I mean, Dylan Cease is their best pitcher, and he is really coveted out there, as he should be, because he's got tremendous stuff. Maybe dealing him and, and really starting to rebuild that team is the way to go. It's tough to do when you're a Chicago team, but uh, this team has played so poorly the last two years. Uh, they have a lot of work to do. Oh, Tim, as always, I appreciate a few minutes talking baseball and uh, have a, a great Christmas and happy new year. And uh, we'll talk uh, right around the start of the season. Okay, Ken. Thanks so much. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas to you. Thank you very much. That's Tim Kirchner of ESPN. We're back to wrap up the podcast and have the latest winners in the daily Gazette's you pick a football contest in just a moment. Hi, this is Daily Gazette sports reporter Will Springstead. I hope you and your family have a wonderful holiday season and a prosperous and healthy 2024. If you really want to know what's going on in your community, you have to read the Daily Gazette. We don't take a side. We're right down the middle and we're going to get to the truth. Our reporters and photographers are out in the field bringing you updates every minute with trust, accuracy, and integrity. From the first page to the last page, independent, probing journalism. We're finding out what's going on in the community where nobody else is covering. It's who we are. It's what we do. Hi, this is Daily Gazette digital producer Stan Hooty. I would like to wish you a happy holiday season and a great 2024. 
Back to wrap up the podcast. The Week 15 winner in the Daily Gazette's U Pick of Football contest was Bonnie Cologne of Rotterdam with a 15 and 1 record. Bonnie wins a $100 Hannaford gift card. Congratulations, Bonnie! The VIP winner was Jim DeMarco of Morris Ford with a 13 and 3 record. I was 11 and 5, and I am 141 and 73 on the season. My Gazette colleague Adam Schinder was 12 and 4. He is 129 and 85. I'll announce the U Pick a Football Contest winner's name, and that winner's name will appear in Thursday's Daily Gazette. To play, go to dailygazette.com and click on the U Pick em Football banner. You can look for my picks at dailygazette.com. Just because COVID 19 mandates are easing, that does not mean you should relax. Be vigilant. If you have not gotten vaccinated or received a booster shot, please do so. Do it for yourself, do it for your family, and do it for your friends. That wraps up another edition of the Parting Shots podcast. I want to thank Dennis Wozak Jr. and Tim Kirkchin for coming on the show. Next week's podcast, we'll have a retrospective of the 2023 sports scene in the Capital Region. Mike McAdam, Adam Schinder, Kyle Adams, and Will Springstead will be a part of that, so please listen. If you have questions or comments about the podcast, email them to me at shot, that's S-C-H-O-T-T, at dailygazette.com. Follow me on X and Threads at Slapshots. The views expressed on the Parting Shots podcast are not necessarily those of the Daily Gazette Company. The Parting Shots podcast is a production of the Daily Gazette Company. I'm Daily Gazette Sports Editor Ken Schott. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. From the Parting Shots podcast studio in Schenectady, New York, good day, good sports, Merry Christmas, and darling love, take us into Christmas. Christmas.